Psychic Self-Defence, Part 1 The Lure of the Marvellous I'm always wondering, who can we trust? Who's telling the truth and how can I judge the information I'm being presented with? Especially recently, the last few months, there's so much noise and nonsense circulating about the coronavirus. Uh, People are scared. Our lives have changed so much and we're living a much more isolated existence than we were before. And at the same time, the constant flow of wealth into the hands of a small few is accelerating. The richest people are getting richer and the poorest now aren't supposed to hang out with each other anymore. Many media sources, corporate, state and independent, are trying to get their versions of the truth into our minds. I'm doing it to you right now, actually. I think I've got a clear view on what the truth is and I want to share that with you because I think it's true. I think it's the right viewpoint. On some level, I know. At least, I think I know. Which one of them, and by them I of course mean us, is presenting the version that most closely resembles the actual truth? Uh, Like the real facts that we need in order to keep ourselves safe. Not just in terms of our physical health, but our mental health as well. Who's being honest and who's delusional? Am I being convinced by logic, by reason and by evidence, or am I being persuaded by emotion, by gripping emotive language and heart-wrenching testimony? A kind of soft, subtle, emotional blackmail. Is it bad to be convinced only by emotion and lacking facts? Of course it is. But is it even possible for us to be convinced by facts alone, as though they exist in a vacuum, unaffected by emotions? At the end of the first two episodes in the series on the topic of uh, monoculture, I spoke for a bit about the scientific method, about the limits of rationalism, the tradition of rationalism, and it it fails to take human emotion into account. And it neglects relationship, it neglects the relationship between things. Things have to be taken in isolation and analysed coldly. And there's kind of a pretense involved in that. It pretends that this is even possible, that we're actually capable of cutting off our emotions and being impartial observers. I know it's possible for humans to shut down our emotional responses to a degree, but is it ever really possible to shut them down entirely, to the point that they don't influence our decisions and observations in any way? In his book, The Righteous Mind, Professor Jonathan Haidt hypothesises and presents fairly convincing evidence, to my mind, that our rational mind, that's our ability to use logic and reason, didn't evolve in us as a mental tool for discovering the truth, but that it evolved so that we could justify positions that we came to through our emotions. In other words, we aren't convinced by logic and reason, we're convinced by emotion, and then we use logic and reason to justify our thoughts. We agree with certain positions and opinions because we like the people who hold them, and so we grow to like the opinion. Or the opinion might already resonate with us on some level with our own internal ethics, but we'd be much more easily convinced to agree with another person who has the same ethics if our personalities are compatible. Now, none of this is set in stone, of course, but essentially what it means is that we're more likely to click with a sound person who has crap opinions than we are to agree with some person we think is a shy-talk who has opinions we agree with. So it seems like maybe there's a bit of a false split, a false separation between facts and feelings. Because all facts are discovered and recorded 
defined and published by emotional beings. So to illustrate what I'm talking about, I'll share this perspective from J.A. Baker, who back in the 1960s wrote this book, The Peregrine. Uh, this book is his, is his diary of a winter spent following a particular peregrine falcon close to his home in Essex in England. Uh, he was a bird watcher, obviously, but he had a particular draw to the peregrine and wanted to document their ways as he, he was afraid to see the decline in their population and in wildlife in general uh, because of industrialization and uh, modernizing farming practices. Now, the point I want to get to is only two or three sentences at the end, but I want to share this full page because the writing is just so gorgeous. Hawk hunting sharpens vision. Pouring away behind the moving bird, the land flows out from the eye in deltas of piercing colour. The angled eye strikes through the surface dross as the oblique axe cuts to the heart of a tree. A vivid sense of place glows like another limb. Direction has colour and meaning. South is a bright, blocked place, opaque and stifling. West is a thickening of the earth into trees, a drawing together, the great beef side of England, the heavenly haunch. North is open, bleak, away to nothing. East is a quickening in the sky, a beckoning of light, a storming suddenness of sea. Time is measured by a clock of blood. When one is active, close to the hawk, pursuing, the pulse raises, time goes faster. When one is still, waiting. The pulse quietens. Time is slow. Always, as one hunts for the hawk, one has an oppressive sense of time contracting inwards like a tightening spring. One hates the movement of the sun, the steady alteration of the light, the increase of hunger, the maddening metronome of the heartbeat. When one says ten o'clock or three o'clock, this is not the grey and shrunken time of towns, it is the memory of a certain fulmination or declension of light that was unique to that time and that place on that day. A memory as vivid to the hunter as burning magnesium. As soon as the hawk hunter steps from his door, he knows the way of the wind. He feels the weight of the air. Far within himself, he seems to see the hawk's day growing steadily towards the light of their first encounter. Time and the weather hold both the hawk and the watcher between their turning poles. When the hawk is found, the hunter can look back lovingly at all the tedium and misery of searching and waiting that went before. All is transfigured as though the broken columns of a ruined temple had suddenly resumed their ancient splendour. I shall try to make plain the bloodiness of killing. Too often this has been slurred over by those who defend hawks. Flesh-eaten man is in no way superior. It is so easy to love the dead. The word predator is baggy with misuse. All birds eat living flesh at some time in their lives. Consider the cold-eyed thrush, that springy carnivore of lawns, worm-stabber, basher to death of snails. We should not sentimentalise his song and forget the killing that sustains it. In my diary of a single winter, I have tried to preserve a unity, binding together the bird, the watcher and the place that holds them both. Everything I describe took place while I was watching, but I do not think that honest observation is enough. The emotions and behaviour of the watcher are also facts, and they must be truthfully recorded. So, emotions are facts, and it's these factual emotions of ours that lay the foundations for the opinions we develop. Our emotions, these facts of our inner life, are the base of our biases. And bias essentially means any sort of preconceived notions we have about other people. Uh, usually negative ones. Preformed ideas we might have in our heads that 
might not necessarily reflect reality. But that's the key. We all are biased and every single thing we read, watch and listen to, including this podcast, has its own inherent bias. And because the algorithms that shape what we see through social media are written by human beings, emotional creatures, that means the very mechanisms by which we receive our information has bias built into them. This is all a bit of a head melt to be dealing with, really. If you take the example of Baker's book there, The Peregrine, it couldn't exactly be called scientific. There's no references in it, it's no peer review. But it is evidently honest and most likely contains more than a little truth. Actually, it's, it's considered a valuable account of the birds in their natural habitat. You know, he's, he's a naturalist, the way Charles Darwin was a naturalist. Now, I'm not saying he's on the same uh, on the same par with Darwin, but um, that's essentially what he was doing. It's naturalism, observing animals in their natural habitat. And he was doing this at a key time when the habitat was changing. His writing is so vivid, he puts you into the field or the woodland he's writing from. He's existing intensely out in the world, the place where all real learning happens. And there's no doubt he's been... He's been imaginative and playful with his description of the bird's perspective and the like, but I like that as an image for what we're trying to do, actually, when we when we use the scientific method and critical thinking. What was it he said? Cutting through the surface dross like an axe cuts to the heart of a tree. He has his own biases, but he's upfront about his emotional reality, so it's not manipulative. When a piece of writing or a video or a news show presents itself as unbiased, is it actually being honest? RTE News. You don't stop. Why should we? RTE News and Current Affairs. Truth RTE brings you the news content that matters. Independent. In-depth and unbiased. Virgin Media News. This is the problem I've been getting stuck on for the last few months. Now, it's always been there long before the coronavirus pandemic in the back of my mind, wondering about what I'm reading online or in print or what I'm watching on the news or listening to on a podcast or whatever. Whose side of the story is being left out? Government sources said this, the minister said that, experts say. How can I assess the quality of the information? How much of this is real journalism, proper investigation and rigorous research? Or how much is just a public relations exercise? Reworded press releases from the corporate or state sector? Hidden advertising or just like, there's so much pretense. This notion of impartiality, of balance, of even-handedness. There's that illusion of balance, of giving both sides of the story, even though the power relations may be profoundly unbalanced in reality. And also the balance of truth might be totally off, but you still have to hear both sides even if one side is talking complete nonsense. I've had these worries for years and on top of that basic problem, I've also long been aware of the, the harmful effects social media was having on my critical faculties. It's no longer a surprise or news to any of us, I'm sure, that the combination of clickbait news headlines, popularity contests, clout-driven influencers and the the all-powerful algorithms that dictate what we are exposed to are pushing us all further and further into our political corners. We're shown only the content that will cause us to click and to consume, not that which will make us stop and think. They, the social media platforms and the people that harness them for financial gain, want to feed on our adoration and our outrage because it gives them the information they need to better sell stuff to us. They don't want to feed our curiosity and critical faculties to encourage us to go out and interact with the world. They want us stuck in front of the screen, consuming. Now this in itself probably sounds a little conspiratorial, but there's nothing new or controversial about this. This is, this is literally Facebook's business model, like 90% of their income comes from advertising. 
you know if you think of facebook you might think of them as either a, a communications platform or a, a news platform or a social media platform they're an advertising company that's that's how they make their money and and we are what they sell so i've been concerned about this for for years but the last few months the way news and information about the about covid-19 the coronavirus has spread online has pushed this problem to the front of my mind and it's almost all I can think about now and I haven't come up with any satisfying answers I'm afraid to tell you but I've learned to live with the questions and that's kind of what this podcast is about so let's look at it the mainstream story about the coronavirus is that it spreads easily from person to person through breath droplets that we need to wash our hands wear face masks in public and avoid unnecessary outings avoid unnecessary social interactions and how much this is being legally enforced varies from state to state and government guidelines are becoming increasingly arbitrary over time. But it's based on some fundamental medical evidence from reputable medical organisations all over the world and from people working on the front line with the sick and the vulnerable. So I believe this story and I accept it as true. I'm washing my hands, avoiding most social contact, masking up when I go to do my food shopping. And, okay, calling it a story might seem flippant. You might say, hang on a minute now, these are facts. This is what the medical evidence tells us. This is what we need to do because this is what the facts and the science tell us. But it is still, in essence, a story. A story told repeatedly and at loud volumes by media sources with the most power, by mainstream media sources, and spread through social media mostly uncritically. Now, believe in any story, no matter how numerously told or how convincing the evidence, ultimately always requires a little bit of a leap of faith. If I can't perceive something directly with my own senses, or prove it myself with my own experience, I must believe what I'm being told about the subject. I'm, on some level, I'm choosing to trust. Now this leap of faith from a position of disbelief to one of belief is where conspiracy theories come in. Some people take the leap a little too early, in the wrong direction. In an ideal, simple world, I won't believe anything that I can't verify with my own senses. But in reality, in order to move through the world to plan and make decisions, I need to believe certain things that other people have discovered or proven or figured out. And now that doesn't mean accepting it uncritically, but rather to do my best to see if have they been honest and have they been rigorous in their investigation and in their explanation. So I listen to the experts in whatever field it is. I'll check out alternative points of view, dissenting points of view, and I'll check which one has the most evidence to back it up. Choosing to trust always carries a little risk, but we can mitigate that risk if we keep our heads screwed on right. According to the astronomer and philosopher Carl Sagan, the scientific method is the key to finding our way in the world without getting sidetracked by lies, half-truths or, shall we call them, interesting theories. His book The Demon Haunted World is the main one I used in preparation for this podcast. He said that at the heart of science is an essential balance between an openness to new ideas and the most ruthlessly sceptical scrutiny of all ideas, old and new. For Sagan, the field of science is a collective enterprise of creative thinking and sceptical thinking. The two skills are complementary, not contradictory. I spoke in the first episode of this series about the scientific method, reflected in the techniques of hunters or foragers. Trial and error, cataloguing information. Science is an essential part of the human experience and has been with us across every human generation. From discovering fire and learning the edible plants to cultivating new strains of edible plants and harnessing that fire to power transport. What we call the scientific method, which I'll go into in more detail in part two, is only the latest incarnation of the human race's effort to understand the world we inhabit. 
Scientists got a lot of things wrong along the way, but as Sagan said, science thrives on mistakes. The beauty of the method is that there is a self-correcting mechanism built into it. The system of peer review of it's not a perfect system and it's prone to its own biases, but it's, it's something, it's a start of having your findings studied and questioned by other experts in the field. And this is a method we can apply to our own lives and we do. We share our opinions with our friends or with strangers on the internet so that they can be challenged and refined. Our opinions and ideas about the world will evolve and grow as we do and they will change as we try to apply them to the world and see what works and what doesn't. And often we will change the world around us in the process. Problems arise though when people are too entrenched in their beliefs and don't allow them to be tempered by reality or moved by other people. So all of us have this ability to think critically and to use our creativity, so why don't we? Why are so many people prone to conspiratorial thinking? And why is there such scepticism in the face of relatively straightforward public health measures like wearing a mask? It doesn't come out of nowhere and as tempting as it is to think that Anyone who believes a conspiracy theory or anyone who questions the validity of the government's information or impartiality is a, a fool or a maniac, well, that's, that's just an oversimplification. In many ways, they're, they're just humans being human. Human beings are hardwired for pattern recognition. We seek out stories all the time. And there's good reason to be suspicious of the government. And there are good reasons to be suspicious of the WHO and the UN. I'll get onto that in a minute. They're not impartial organisations simply working for the health of the peoples of the world. Now, I, I believe that they do, they collect information and network and campaign and fund research in order to positively benefit human health globally, I believe that. But they're also political organisations, bound up in the movements of international politics. They are susceptible to corruption and to ego-centred power gains, just like every other major political organisation is. So lacking trust or being sceptical of them is completely understandable, and it's not a bad place to start from. One popular conspiracy theory pushed no less by the USA's reality TV president, is that the virus was a deliberate act by the Chinese government. That it was released, either accidentally or deliberately, from a biochemical weapons lab in Wuhan. This is a prevailing story amongst the anti-mask, anti-vaccine protesters that I've seen, and it was written on one of the placards I saw down at the GPO the other week, where they've been protesting against the lockdown and a lot of stuff really, it's kind of confusing. I'll talk about them later on as well. Now this could be written off as just straightforward racism or xenophobia. The virus came from China, therefore China bad. And there's no doubt that the far right, laced as it is with white supremacist and ethno-nationalist tendencies, are inclined to look for scapegoats. And though a lot of these, the people at these protests aren't racist, they are rubbing shoulders with a fair few who are, shouting homophobic and racist slogans at anyone who disagrees with them, or who they just don't like the look of. So it's easy to kind of brush off everything they say because so much of what they say makes so little sense. But really, I think there are seeds of truth to this story. Well, maybe seeds of truth is pushing it a bit, but there are real conditions that led to this line of thinking. And I can see how people might wind up coming to these conclusions, especially when the president of one of the most powerful countries in the world is amplifying it. Government officials from the UK have also said it, that China released it deliberately or manufactured it, including the head of MI6, a trustworthy source, if ever there was one. Some of the SAS admit that they were killing on, quote, an industrial scale. And they were going out every night based on information given to them by MI6 and killing alleged terrorists. 
but in the process they also uh, killed a lot of what appeared to be innocent people. Anyway, look, the truth is the Chinese government are incredibly influential on the global stage and their influence is growing exactly in proportion to how the USA's influence is shrinking. East Asia in, in many ways is the centre of global politics, though we here in the West might not be too clued into it. I definitely wasn't, uh, not in any detail. Uh, well, I kind of followed the Hong Kong protests last year, but up until now I never really paid attention to what was happening in that part of the world. And now something's come to my doorstep and slapped me in the face. So I've been paying attention lately. And if you look at the early days of the virus and see how the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, dealt with it, and how the WHO, the World Health Organization, dealt with the CCP, and then how they both screwed over Taiwan, as they have been for years, it's not difficult to empathise with the conspiracy theorists. I'm not saying it makes the conspiracy theory more believable, it doesn't. It seems clear that the claim that it was deliberate or that it's a weapon isn't based on evidence. I'll explore this in more detail in part two. Uh, and on top of that, there is a plausible origin story for the virus, which I'll, I'll get to then as well. But what's undeniable is that the CCP wield a great deal of influence over the WHO and that the WHO are not an unbiased, benevolent force in all this. So basically, the scene is ripe for conspiratorial thinking. Let's look at what happened early on. Early on in the life of the virus, in the early stages of the pandemic, two opposing stories emerged from two different countries. In China, right up until the end of January, the CCP denied that there was any problem. It also seems like they've been silencing journalists who attempted to broadcast the severity of the outbreak when the government was still trying to keep quiet about it. One of them, a man that used to work for the kind of hilariously named state broadcaster CCTV, was arrested and held for two months. Two other men, Chen Qixi and Fang Bin, haven't been seen since February. They were just arrested and no one's seen them since. They could be alive or dead, we don't know. Uh, both of them were independent journalists who had been critical of the state. Chen Qixi had previously covered the protests in Hong Kong. Uh, he's an independent citizen journalist uh, publishing on the internet. Uh, I think he used YouTube. Yeah, I've read about this from multiple sources and that's the most up-to-date information I can find. Um, when I initially read it, I thought, oh, that's like people say that about China all the time, that they disappear, people that don't agree with them. A kind of commie bashing, but it's uh, this this is true. Like, As far as I can tell, it's true anyway. Journalists who are critical of them were arrested. And two of them could be, like, we, they're just gone. So at this time, the Chinese state, the CCP, were publishing results of an investigation that claimed there was no evidence of human-to-human -human transmission of the virus. No evidence. On January the 14th, the WHO retweeted this finding. So much of this shit happens on Twitter. It's ridiculous. RTE.ie brings you the latest tweets, the top stories. Anyway, meanwhile, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus probably butchering his name, he's the Director General of the WHO, he praised the CCP's transparency and their containment efforts, while saying there was no need for travel restrictions. What we have here, paraphrasing Sagan, is a combustible mixture of ignorance and power. Taiwan, on the other hand, took action on the virus well before China, while the CCP allowed Lunar New Year celebrations to go ahead in Wuhan, allowing thousands to leave the province, spreading the virus to other parts of the country. Taiwan were banning travel from China and beginning their containment efforts. Taiwan attempted to alert the WHO at the end of December, over two months before the pandemic was declared, and was trying to tell them that human-to-human -human transmission was possible and that it was spreading really fast. But they were ignored because the WHO don't recognise Taiwan as a nation because of China's influence. Taiwan are kept out of the UN and, by extension, the WHO, blocking them off from valuable information sharing and cooperation. 
They even refused to call it Taiwan, referring to it as Taiwan China, or recently the totally ridiculous Taipei and its environs. Taipei is the capital of Taiwan. Despite this suppression and refusal of admission to the organisation, Taiwan's response to the pandemic has been one of the best in the world. So to this date, which is the 13th of September, they've had just under 500 cases and only 7 deaths. That's one of the lowest rates in the world. Their first death by the virus actually only happened early in August, which is over 7 months after the outbreak started. And this is despite being an island off the coast of China, like they're literally right next to China where the virus originated. Compare that to Ireland, an island half the world away from China. We are in the top 20 globally for deaths per million. This means for every 1 million of our population, we have 360 deaths. To put that into context, the USA and the UK have around 600 deaths per million. Taiwan has 0.3. Why is this? Like, how, how can an island nation that neighbours China have one of the lowest infection rates and one of the lowest death rates in the world, and yet our island off the coast of Europe has one of the highest? We're in the top 50 for infection rates and we're in the top 20 for death rates. Similarly now, other nearby countries like Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia have all managed it much better than any country in Europe has. And there's loads of reasons for this now, cultural differences, different styles of government. Uh, it's a complicated picture as to why that happened, but the main thing to my mind is that they responded early, took precautionary measures and generally took the short-term pain, long-term gain approach. The Irish government, on the other hand, listened to the WHO. The Irish government listened to authority discounting other experts who were excluded for political reasons. Just like many other states the world over, the Irish state was guided by politics more than they were guided by science. Now, Carol Sagan said, the values of science and the values of democracy are concordant, in many ways indistinguishable. Science thrives on, indeed requires, the free exchange of ideas. Its values are antithetical to secrecy. Science holds no special vantage points or privileged positions. He went on to say that both science and democracy require rigorous standards of evidence and honesty. Now, here's where I diverge from Sagan slightly in that I think he's probably a bit doe-eyed about democracy as a system in reality. In theory it has those values for sure, but in practice, at least as it's practiced almost everywhere in the world, it's exclusive and tends towards corruption. And by exclusive I mean it, it, there's a, a concentration of power that tends to happen. Now, I know that happens in nominally communist countries like China, for example, but it's, it's democracy as an ideal doesn't really get realised, is what I'm saying. Now, the WHO are nominally democratic, and we'd suppose them to be scientific, but have they proven themselves to be rigorous in this situation? Like, what, What's democratic or scientific about excluding Taiwan? For Sagan, science and secrecy are incompatible. He said, its culture and ethos are, for very good reason, collective, collaborative and communicative. The Taiwanese researchers who attempted to inform the WHO as early as December were shut out. Later in January when the, the WHO finally started to cop that something was wrong and the CCP couldn't contain the obvious reality any longer, Taiwanese reps were still excluded from the discussions, despite proving to be better prepared and further ahead of the game than anywhere else. They were so well prepared because, uh, like some of their neighbouring countries, uh, after the SARS outbreak in 2003, which was an earlier form of the coronavirus, they set up the Central Epidemic Command Centre. Uh, they were ready, in other words. Their research and data collection methods have proven effective. But they're ignored, and they're denied information. The WHO also denied them information relating to SARS back then, and told them to refer to the CCP. So, 
Did CCP develop the virus as a weapon or did it occur naturally? I'll explore this question using the scientific approach in part two. But for now, it's enough to say that while the notion of it being a deliberately engineered bioweapon looks unlikely to be true, it seems that the theory grew out of some very real political conditions. China and the USA are the two most powerful countries in the world, and as the balance of power shifts, all kinds of stories will be used to apportion blame and make excuses for political action. Remember the invasion of Iraq? They never did find those weapons of mass destruction, did they? Still, thousands were murdered. But there is no doubt that Iraq poses a threat in respect of weapons of mass destruction. There is no doubt at all the United Nations resolutions that Saddam is in breach of are there for a purpose. I am quite sure, I think most people are, that he has these weapons. And the truth is, this issue of weapons of mass destruction is a real threat to the world. Look, I would never support anything I thought was wrong out of some blind loyalty to the US. At this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to On disarm Tuesday Iraq. Night, I gave to the order for British forces to take part in military action in Iraq. Retreat might give us a moment of respite, but years of repentance at our weakness would, I believe, follow. The main reason we went into Iraq at the time was we thought he had weapons of mass destruction. It turns out he didn't, but he had the capacity. I express to more sorrow, regret, and apology than you may ever know or can believe. So we need to be careful what stories we believe and accept as the truth. In parts two and three, I'll cover some of the critical thinking tools that Carl Sagan listed in his book for recognising fraudulent arguments. One of them worth mentioning now is the rule that arguments from authority don't carry much weight. We should never believe something just because it comes from an authority, because authorities have made mistakes in the past and they will do again. People who tend to believe in conspiracy theories seem to be coming from a place of distrust in authority, which is no bad place to start. But at the same time, we shouldn't disbelieve something just because it comes from authority. Because this doesn't mean that everything the WHO says is nonsense, far from it. There is, like, some kind of system of accountability for the WHO. And as powerful as the CCP are, there, there are national governments willing to question them as well. And increasingly, the EU are becoming more vocal about their position on Taiwan that Taiwan should be an independent nation. And well, they are an independent nation, they're just not recognised as one, like they're totally self-governed, but the Chinese government claim that they're part of China. Now, the WHO are undoubtedly corrupt, but they're also undoubtedly a reliable source, and this is the problem with conspiracy theories. Sagan called it an impatience with ambiguity. The inability to hold multiple, sometimes seemingly contradictory ideas at the same time. The desire to have a clear answer so we can stop asking questions. And if all the points in the story don't add up, then so what? At least we've got a story, at least we have an explanation. Sagan said, The god of the gaps is assigned responsibility for what we do not yet understand. I really like that expression, the god of the gaps, because back in the day, a divine force would have been cited as the reason for what is happening in the world. I guess it still is the same for some people. But today's conspiracy theorists, the doom prophets of our time, substitute god with a sinister new world order a shady international network of elites. And so they stop asking questions, satisfied that they've found the answer. They now know the truth, and all they have to do is tell everyone about it. Wake up, sheeple, they beg us. Throw off your woolly coats. Now really, what I think 
my main point with this podcast is that we have to keep the questions. We have to keep asking, keep probing and never be totally satisfied with the answer. Sagan said that wisdom lies in understanding our limitations. This applies to all of us, but equally it applies to the WHO. The two seemingly contradictory ideas in this case are that, number one, the WHO is a reputable organisation that publishes trustworthy medical and health advice, and number two, the WHO are a corrupt organisation playing power games and concerned with social control. Now, the troubling thing is that both of those things are true. Whether we like it or not, we exist in a world where powerful organisations are most likely ultimately untrustworthy and have nefarious motives, but they still do beneficial and necessary things and publish reliable and helpful information. Like, we need experts. We need experts that we can refer to for stuff like this, for best practice in times of spreading disease. You know, there's people out there that have dedicated their entire lives to understanding the finer details of how viruses work, how they spread and how we can protect ourselves against them. Not everyone can dedicate that time to it because we're busy dedicating our time to other things, holding our lives together, so we need experts. At the moment, the WHO is the best we have. The trouble with the WHO is that they're an authority and they're treated as such. Again, referring back to Sagan, there are no authorities in science. Authorities can and often do get things wrong. At best, we have experts. And their expertise is conditional on them continuously updating it. So, that's the big picture, big politics perspective. Conspiracy theories don't come out of nowhere, and I don't think it should be automatically an insult to call someone a conspiracy theorist. But they should always be treated with a massive grain of salt until it's backed up with evidence. The scientific method will help us there, and I'll get into that now in part two. It's worth saying at this point that, in my opinion anyway, really, responsibility should not lie with each of us individually. The responsibility lies with state governments, international organisations like the WHO, and media sources to be honest and to be open. But are they going to do that? Highly unlikely. They work more often than not in their own interests, driven forward by their own biases. So we need to be well equipped to move through the world as it is, while being ready to challenge those structures. We also need to be able to identify good information because often good, reliable information comes from the very sources that so often mislead us. So we could do it taking certain steps to protect our minds from the silliness and the lies. As Sagan said, the problem with scientific reporting is that more often than not, the results are reported, but not the method. We need to be able to work this stuff out ourselves to a degree at least, and to be able to interpret at least some of the information. And if not, to be able to discern and judge for ourselves which reporters are writing with an even hand and which ones are having a little too much crack with their poetic license. Sagan tells us that we humans are easily distracted by the lure of the marvellous that fantastic stories can convince us more easily than cold, factual reports. And it looks like he's probably right. So how can we keep a clear head when there's so much here to distract and dizzy us? We'll get into that now in part two. And that's it for part one. Uh, This was meant to just be kind of an introduction to this short series on critical thinking and scientific thinking and how to analyse media. But I... I suppose I got a little carried away talking about the political situation between China and Taiwan, but I only started learning about that recently and I I find it fascinating. And I think it's really important to understand the context out of which these stories originate. The news stories and the conspiracy stories and all of it, they all come out of real happenings in the world. Well, 
as far as I can judge they're real like I said I didn't witness any of that with my own eyes I, I'm choosing to trust the testimony of strangers now I've done my best to check out as, as much of a variety of sources as possible but still to me they're just stories I don't really know the reality of them and it's hard when every reporter has their own bias to judge which ones most accurately representing reality so to summarize what this episode was about is that fundamentally life is very complicated and chaotic basically and seemingly contradictory things can be true at the same time and it's sometimes difficult to recognize the different perspectives on what the truth of the matter actually is and this is made even more difficult by the bias in the media and then the bias that shapes social media and that shapes us so that's what i'm hoping to help myself and hopefully help a few other people with is to go over some critical thinking and scientific thinking skills that'll help us interpret and understand the media we consume because we all consume media every day but i think i think bias is important understanding our own biases and understanding the biases of who you're reading or who you're listening to or who you're watching is really important with that in mind before you listen to part two i'd like to invite you to try and identify some of your own biases what opinions do you hold on particular issues what are your core values and your core ethics if you can name them what are you afraid of what's your background where are you from what's your identity where on the political spectrum of left to right do you think you lie or do your ethics even fit comfortably into either of those categories do you tend to follow the rules or are you more likely to be skeptical of the rules and you could listen back to this episode and see if you can identify some of my biases i think i'm fairly upfront about where i stand on most issues and what my political leanings are but i'll be giving you a particular picture of the world based on that and hopefully you'll be able to make your own judgments about what i'm saying regardless of that frame i have for looking at things uh, myself i'm from a from a middle class background i had a third level education i'm from a small town in ireland i'm a man in my 30s all these things are going to influence my bias and influence how i look at things we're all shaped by the environment that we came from and there's no getting past that but we can be aware of how it affects how we look at things so yeah have a, have a think about that have a think about yourself in that way because that's part of critical thinking we'll get into that a little bit in part two and a lot more in part three thinking about why do you think the way you think so yeah that's it for now if you want to get in touch with me about anything you can give me a shout at turningearthradio at gmail.com and if you want to check out any resources I used in making this podcast, any of the scientific or academic studies or any of the articles I read, all the rest of it, you can find them on the Turning Earth blog, which is turningearth.home.blog. And finally, if you'd like to financially support the podcast, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash turningearth. The hosting of this podcast is paid for by Glushucht, the environmental justice NGO. And as usual, they have no say in the contents of the podcast. So if you think anything I said is nonsense or if you have any problem, with the podcast contact me directly it's, it's nothing to do with Glushuk so thanks very much Glushuk uh, thanks as well to Gareth Curtis for drawing the image for this episode and uh, you'll find links to his work on any of the Turning Art social media accounts and finally thanks to everyone who has helped me out by listening to this and giving me feedback Gareth donates his work and everyone else who contributes in any way all give their time for free I obviously do this all for free as well and um, other than Glushuk paying the SoundCloud fees, which I really appreciate, uh, this podcast generates no income. And I've, I've no intention of fecking about with ads or any of that nonsense. Uh, the internet's got enough of that crap going on already. So if you can spare the price of a pint each month, it will go a very long way. 
Uh, you don't get anything special for subscribing, uh, but your contribution would make a huge difference. So that's it, patreon.com forward slash turning earth. Uh, you can also make a one-time donation at coffee.com forward slash turning earth. That's ko-fi.com forward slash turning earth. Um, that's actually it for now. Uh, thanks and good luck.